Hello, and thank you for listening to Iowa City Matters. This is our second episode of the podcast series, which is aimed at tackling complex topics that impact and showcase our unique community. I'm Jody Matherly, Police Chief for the Iowa City Police Department. I'll be your host for this episode, which will shed some light on crisis intervention, a topic being addressed all across the country, including right here in Iowa City. Let's begin with a brief history. Crisis intervention dates back to 1988 in Memphis, Tennessee, when the first versions of law enforcement trainings were put into place. Intervention training has really picked up momentum in the last five years as law enforcement continues to improve efforts to help persons with mental disorders and or addictions access the proper medical treatment rather than placing them in the criminal justice system. In 2015 and 16, local law enforcement began making trips to San Antonio to receive comprehensive training. 24 officers, deputies, and first responders from Johnson County area agencies were trained in CIT. Also making the trip were local government officials, county supervisors, city council members, city management, and key staff, as well as multiple agencies that would need to understand this program, support it, and adopt its principles. The investment of those trips made by the county, city, and other area organizations has quickly paid off. Our officers who receive that education now provide local training to other law enforcement and first responder agencies within the county and even across the state. This annual training continues to advance our goal of improving the safety of both officers and those in distress. Before we delve any deeper, let's begin by introducing you to our panel of experts. David Schwent has been a member of the Iowa City Police Department for 18 years. He served five years as the downtown liaison officer and is currently assigned as the coordinator of the Data-Driven Justice Initiative. Officer Schwent, what led you to that line of work? In 2013, while I was working the downtown assignment, uh, I was working primarily with the chronically homeless who spent a great deal of time in our downtown area. Through my work there, I was invited to participate in the local homeless coordinating board meetings. As part of that group, I volunteered to uh, help with a study of the chronically homeless and the amount of services they utilize in our area. That study and the results of it uh, ended up playing a role in getting funding for the, our new Housing First initiative and ultimately led to us being involved in the data-driven justice movement. Next is Ellie Gould. She's the Jail Alternatives Coordinator with the Johnson County Sheriff's Office. This unique position works to develop jail diversion programs and alternative options to incarceration. Ellie, what brought you to the field of criminal justice? So actually, when I was in college, my background is in psychology and human services, and I, fresh out of college, decided I wanted to be a 911 dispatcher. Ended up marrying a law enforcement officer and found that I had a love for emergency response as well as the helping profession, human services. And this just became, for me, the perfect way to combine both of those passions. Matt Miller is the project manager of the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Center, which is currently in the design phase. This multi-million dollar facility is aimed at addressing mental health in our community. Can you tell us a little bit about your background in health care services, Matt? Certainly. I actually got started as a project manager a little over 10 years ago um, and then turned to healthcare project management about five years ago. The thing that's sort of drawn me toward that is that I'm always working on new things and learning about new things. Um, you start a project, you finish it up, and you go on to the next project. So I really enjoy how that sort of keeps things fresh. As far as the Access Center project, I've actually been working on that since May of 2018. And rounding out our group of panelists is Chrissy Canganelli, Executive Director of the Shelter House since 1998. 
Through her leadership, the organization offers a year-round emergency shelter, comprehensive support services, and permanent supportive housing for those moving beyond homelessness. Chrissy, how did you first get involved with social services in our community? Well, as I was graduating uh, from my master's program, Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Iowa, I'd simultaneous to that been serving on the board of directors for what was then Emergency Housing Project. My emphasis of study was in housing and community development, and because of the experiences that I'd had personally in my own life and the stories of the people that I met through my volunteer service, I was compelled to uh, take on the position with uh, what was to become Shelter House and have stayed there ever since. Well, why don't we begin with a basic definition? Ellie, for those who aren't familiar with the topic, what is crisis intervention and how is it used? Yeah, so crisis intervention is a, um, here in Johnson County, we use it as a 40-hour training that law enforcement receives. Really all emergency responders are encouraged to receive this training. And it just provides them the tools to be able to be successful, safe, and impactful in the community when they're responding to someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis. Ultimately, it's used to be able to identify individuals at an earlier point in time experiencing crisis and help connect them to the next appropriate service, as opposed to um, you know remaining in the community with their needs going unmet or just not really knowing who to connect people to. One of the really, what I see as a really important piece of crisis intervention training though, is that it's keeping not only law enforcement and emergency responders safe, but it also really keeps the members of the community safe because it's allowing law enforcement to have the know-how to, to respond in these situations. What makes it such a difficult and crucial aspect of our response systems when we're talking about crisis intervention? within the context of, uh, for folks that are experiencing homelessness in particular, we're working with people that are living out their lives in the most publicly exposed spaces. The folks that we're working with, if there's a common denominator other than poverty, it's trauma. They are oftentimes just living in perpetual states of crisis. So having first responders throughout our community trained in crisis intervention uh, just means that we are a community that's better able to respond in the time and place when those services are really needed and, and meet people where they are. I think also having this training here within Johnson County allows us the opportunity to reduce a lot of the stigmas that exist within society as it relates to law enforcement, individuals who are experiencing mental illness, and really just build connections and, and foster healthier relationships there because we know that law enforcement is on the front line of responding to folks in their homes and in the community who are feeling unwell. So as we're collaborating and bringing different disciplines together, does crisis intervention training offered to law enforcement and other first responders differ from that of the medical community? It does differ in some ways. However, I often relate crisis intervention training to, you know, like the first aid trainings that law enforcement go through. It's essentially a very specific first aid training that law enforcement goes through, except now we're talking about how someone is unwell or how they are, how they are ill within their brain um, and how, you know, they're, they're mentally not functioning at a healthy level. But it does differ in that we implement a lot of role plays. We allow law enforcement to really put to use the information that they're receiving and the, the curriculum that they're sitting through classes learning. So, Dave, you've worked on data-driven justice for many years. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and the role it plays with crisis intervention? In law enforcement, like most organizations, we have our records management system where we keep track of uh, the calls for service to which we respond and uh, the people with whom we're dealing and the, some of the details around those situations. 
What we don't have is a way to make that information accessible to help officers or others do their jobs better in the future. We're essentially creating data and records about these incidents that's being stored away and never accessed again, when by simply providing a way for people to access that data, we could provide better services back to those individuals. So data-driven justice is essentially about making better use of the data we have by making it more accessible in a timely fashion. Chrissy, what is your take on uh, how that affects your line of work and your facility? The combination of data-driven justice and crisis intervention um, provides us an opportunity to work more closely together with others, both public and private partners, to identify people that are showing up frequently across our different systems and services, and those individuals in particular that we're really not able to help resolve in constructive ways. With information on the front side, we're better able to identify people more quickly, target the services appropriately, and avoid situations from cycling into what have become chronic patterns, habitual patterns in the, in the past that escalate um, through our emergent services. I hope that that makes sense. So really to focus on getting people to the appropriate services in the time and place that they're needed and avoid situations from escalating with the overall imperative of keeping people from becoming uh, involved in the criminal justice system overall. So from your view, uh, Chrissy, how do you see the role of crisis intervention working in the community? Uh, Have you seen that it's uh, had drastic effects? Yes, already through the use of our mobile crisis team and the partnership with local law enforcement, having those resources and entities available and more accessible to our staff on site at Shelter House, both in our uh, Southgate Avenue facility and the Low Barrier Winter Shelter, we're able to work more closely with folks that are trained to come in and help us de-escalate situations. Homeless service providers, you know, we really don't have that bandwidth of um, clinical staff or folks on staff that are able to handle every different situation that manifests within a homeless shelter environment. So being able to lean on our partners who have had that training come in and support us has really helped to keep, again, situations from escalating further and keeping the other clients uh, safe and, and our staff safe. Matt, the next question is for you. Many people know of the plans to build the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Center here in Johnson County. Can you fill us in on the purpose and the progress of that center? Certainly. As it relates to crisis intervention training, as you alluded to, it's just a great third option for law enforcement and our emergency responders. It's a great third option as a place to take those people that are experiencing that behavioral health crisis. Historically, the two places that folks like that would end up would be the emergency room or jail. We're really wanting to try to avoid overly medicalizing or overly criminalizing um, those behavioral health issues. So really, this is a a jail and emergency room diversion program. Folks can use that crisis intervention training to de-escalate the issue and then have um, a viable place to take them that keeps them out of those other systems that have a tendency of not being particularly cost efficient and kind of repeating the cycle where you see the same people showing up at the emergency room or jail month after month after month. The access center will be sort of a one-stop shop for those folks that are experiencing behavioral health crises or substance abuse issues. We can try to get them connected um, with the appropriate treatment plans and sort of break that cycle that they're stuck in. So in terms of who's treated there, what what is the range of people at the center that will be treated? Is it geographically decided or, or by the type of crisis that they're in or how does that work? 
Yeah, well, the good thing about this access center is it's actually uh, focused on kind of treating whatever ails you. <laughs> um, we're going to be accepting any uh, adults, so 18 and older primarily. It's a voluntary unlocked facility, so we'll be accepting walk-ins. But uh, once again, it's just kind of a great option besides going to jail. So it's really we're taking those folks who are uh, cooperative. We all know that certainly during stressful situations, things can escalate and become violent, in which case we'll get them somewhere else where they need to go for that acute care. Um, but really, we're, we're there to treat whatever the issue is as well. Historically, uh, substance abuse and mental health issues have been treated separately. There's separate sets of regulations, separate uh, reimbursement models for those. We're really kind of incorporating both those things under one roof so we can treat whatever the issue is. Oftentimes, substance abuse issues go hand in hand with mental health issues, folks trying to self-medicate when they're under stressful situations. So having both of those services under one roof is going to be a good thing to uh, hopefully, once again, break that cycle people are experiencing. So an individual that has a family member that is experiencing a crisis situation doesn't necessarily have to wait for something to happen to call the police for response. This person could maybe take that family member that needs immediate assistance to your facility for treatment. Exactly. And the goal is to be much quicker in our responsiveness than having to go to an emergency room or having to wait for law enforcement. You can show up, essentially get in and get an evaluation right away and get you into whatever treatment plan is most needed. When law enforcement is involved in bringing folks to the center, the intention, too, is to really limit the amount of time that law enforcement is engaged in that transition and uh, allow the officers to return to the police work that they need to. So instead of spending hours and hours, which is happening now, in the emergency room, they're able to, within our goal will be within 12 to 15 minutes, dropping people off, getting them connected, and then return to the community policing. I think that's a really important part because I have personally sat in the emergency room with somebody in a crisis state for four or six hours as we waited to go through all those processes that were necessary there. And not only is that frustrating for the officer and the individual, but they tend to escalate during that time out of frustration. So this quick response time and getting them turned over to the appropriate staff, I think, is, is key for a successful outcome. Ellie, your work is to identify those who don't belong in the judicial system. How does that work and what type of community organizations do you work with to achieve that goal? So really that goal begins with education. So that's where kind of the, some of the initial discussions of the crisis intervention training began was being able to educate law enforcement on alternatives to incarceration, as well as sometimes looking beyond what the initial um, disposition of the call came in as. But then it really becomes just having open community collaboration with community providers, discussing individual case plans with individuals, as well as having open and honest discussions with cross disciplines in terms of what options are available, um, what an individual's needs are, as well as you know what other services exist for folks. Communication is the biggest piece of this all, and I think this is why all of us can sit around this table and have conversations like this, is because without having these types of discussions that are sometimes a little bit uncomfortable, we would never identify the gaps within our community, within the service array. We have regular meetings with uh, public defenders, county attorney's office, you know, individuals from the jail, probation and parole um, involved with the DOC, as well as Prelude, Shelter House, Mobile Crisis Outreach, the Crisis Center. So really a lot of the community organizations and providers are involved with this work in ways that I think the vast majority of the community probably doesn't even realize because oftentimes as it relates to mental health, we don't talk about it until it is a huge issue. 
I think crisis intervention as well as GL alternatives has kind of swept the county to become a very important topic. So I've heard people equate less people in jail to mean more crime in a community. Statistically speaking, why is that theory flawed, Ellie? That theory is flawed because we know that people are sometimes ending up in jail because it's the only option to keep them safe or it's the only option to keep the community safe, whereas that doesn't necessarily meet the need. It might in that moment, but the most appropriate and long-term fix for that individual would be receiving treatment for their actual issue. So uh, maybe you have someone who's experiencing suicidal ideations and the only way to keep them safe is to have them in a confined, safe environment. Historically, before a lot of these trainings began, folks were ending up either sitting in the emergency room for an extended period of, of time or they were ending up in our jails. That's why a lot of jails are so overpopulated. Actually, here's a little side note. Statistically, Cook County, Rikers Island, those forensic facilities are the largest psychiatric facilities in the country. And that is because there has been no alternative. But we know that if we are having individuals who are mentally ill filling the jails, the individuals who are actually committing crimes and um, you know need to be in those confined environments, a lot of times there's not space for them. It's kind of become a shift from keeping people in jail because it's it's the only or safest option as opposed to having the individuals who just plain and simply need to be there. So localizing that, Dave, what does the DDJI research tell us? Sure. Last year, <clears throat> I pulled numbers um, countywide from all of the law enforcement agencies on the reported crime and compared those to the average daily population of our jail. And at the beginning of that seven-year period, uh, our jail had an average daily population of about 161 inmates. At the end of that seven years, uh, it was down to just over 91 inmates, so a significant daily, a significant drop in that average daily population. And over that same seven-year period, we had a steady trend of a minor decrease in crime. So even though we were incarcerating fewer people on a daily basis at the jail, we still saw a decrease in crime in the county. And I can add to that our own local experience is we've um, increased the shelter opportunities and reduced barriers to shelter, in particular with the implementation of the low barrier winter shelter, where we have no requirements as far as participation in a program or sobriety expectations, things like that. We found in working very closely with Iowa City Police Department that uh, during the season that the and the hours specifically that that shelter option was available, our community was seeing decreases in uh, vagrancy calls and calls for service anywhere from 67% to 74%. Really, you can't look at or, or make a statement as far as reduction in, in um, jail census means and, and correlate increase in criminal activity on the streets. You can't look at that in a vacuum. You have to look at it in the context of what are the services that are available and the increased access points for very vulnerable populations. And I think that our community is a really great example of how we have increased access to uh, essential services, emergency shelter, for in particular chronically homeless individuals. There's been an immediate impact that we've been able to see because of that. And now looking at increasing the housing opportunities, permanent supportive housing opportunities, we can demonstrate decreases in uh, criminal justice involvement of 99% for people that we're housing from pre-housing to post-housing. So these are really significant things. 
I would also add that within the work that crisis intervention brings and jail alternatives, being able to re- reduce recidivism rates just by connecting with people at an earlier point in time, either on the street or once they have been incarcerated. That also, of course, as you know, relating to the statistics that Dave mentioned, definitely comes into play when it relates to the amount of crime that's taking place in the community. So that gives us a good segue to the next question. And Chrissy, this one's for you. The shelter house just opened up Cross Park Place. It's a 24 occupancy apartment complex for the homeless. Can you talk a little bit about the housing first model that that's based on? Sure. So Cross Park Place is a housing first intervention. It's a permanent supportive housing program. So we're developing and making available permanent homes for individuals. Uh, Using a housing first approach means that we are not requiring people to participate in any program requirements. There are no requirements for people to sober up, to be med compliant prior to accessing housing. This really does take everything that our nation has been doing over the last 30 years in addressing homelessness and turns it on its head. It's a paradigm shift. Housing First essentially says uh, if you're homeless, your first and foremost need is housing and that housing is the stabilizing factor that all people should have. Once housing is stable and guaranteed, that then conversations can begin with folks to talk about if they're ready to address their health issues, their mental health issues, but that those conversations and those services do not become attached in any way, shape, or form to an individual's tenancy or their access to their housing. It's kept completely separate. So this is the first uh, initiative like this in the state of Iowa. Uh, Services are being offered on site. So we have embedded clinical services through partnerships with University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics and the University of Iowa College of Nursing. We have on-site case management. But again, for the tenants, their participation and access to these services is entirely voluntary on their part. Well, we certainly know the residents are just moving in as of last month, so we're excited to to see that progress. Yeah. The other thing that's very unique about this is that these housing opportunities are prioritized for the chronically homeless in our community. So these are individuals that have been living on our streets, some for decades. As a part of that chronic homeless definition, they have a disabling condition, almost without exception. Everybody's got a co-occurring disability, serious mental illness with chronic substance abuse histories, and then ongoing chronic health issues just in general. Additionally, we've targeted 15 out of the 24 units for people that are really demonstrating high cross-system service utilization. So we've got individuals that are, over the course of the three years that we've analyzed their their recent costs, anywhere from $100,000 to, I think our high is $1.7 million in costs across health, criminal justice, legal, all different sectors, human service sectors. And we intend to be able to show uh, significant decreases in those costs and, and service utilizations as they maintain their housing. So another facility that just opened up is the University of Iowa's Crisis Stabilization Unit that serves those that are experiencing an emotional crisis or psychiatric emergency. Matt, how does the Behavioral Health Urgent Care Center differ from that unit? Certainly. Well, the primary thing is if you look at the front door to get into that crisis stabilization unit, is still the emergency room. Folks are still showing up there, and the goal of the access center, once again, is to divert folks from ever having to cross that threshold. Um, But with that being said, we are planning to work in very close collaboration with the University of Iowa Crisis Stabilization Unit. They just opened in October of 2018 and already have some very valuable data that they've shared with us about the types of folks that are showing up, how long they're there before they discharge, things like that. 
it really appears that the data is showing that there is a large population of folks in the community that utilize behavioral health services. So the thinking is that there's enough patients to go around. There's going to still be folks that need to be at the crisis stabilization unit and maybe better suited to be there. Um, And then folks that are better suited for the access center. I think really the thinking is that we want the sickest of the sick to continue to go to that ER and continue to be in the crisis stabilization unit. But roughly 70, 75 percent of the folks could be served just as well at the access center. We aim to be a diversion program there, but still work in very close collaboration with the University of Iowa. Some of the big differentiators are that the crisis stabilization unit is primarily meant to be for crisis observation services only, so anything less than 23, 24 hours. From that point, the goal is to get them discharged home or they would have to go into an inpatient facility. Here at the Access Center, we'll actually have um, something called crisis stabilization services, so anyone could stay up to five days, essentially. Another differentiator is um, how we're going to be providing substance abuse services as well. There will be detox on site. There will be a sobering unit on site, which is slightly different than what the scope of the crisis stabilization unit at the UI is aiming to target. And then one other thing is our access center really aims to be offering multi-agency coordination. We really want to make sure that we're connecting patients to get those additional services they may need. We're going to be in close connection with Shelter House, for example, right next door. Um, A lot of other community services that are in that area. So we really plan to to offer that as well. But once again, to reiterate, we we definitely feel like the crisis stabilization unit will be a a very helpful partner. And uh, we're, we're really glad to actually have that partnership with the University of Iowa. So let's freestyle a little bit and talk about, any of you can answer this, some of the changes or advancements that can be expected in the coming years when it comes to crisis intervention. So I think some of the changes um, and advances that are taking place is that as a general rule, when individuals think of calling law enforcement, they don't necessarily think about talking about how they're feeling. And now that is accepted and embraced and not to speak for law enforcement, because I'm certainly not one. But I think that that's something that is, you know, that's a hope that law enforcement expects they can walk into a situation and hear the authentic truth to the situation and really hear what is what is going on in that moment. That's already begun in Johnson County, the relationships that I've been able to witness just the rapport with various law enforcement and individuals in the community has been really incredible, but I think that's just going to continue to grow. I'm hopeful that with crisis intervention, as I mentioned earlier, there will continue to be a reduction in the stigma of the mentally ill and also of law enforcement. Yeah, I can sort of piggyback on that as well with the the stigma hopefully going away there. I'm certainly not an expert in this field, but having been involved with it for several months now, I think one thing that you're starting to see, not just in Iowa, but across the country, is people really kind of looking at behavioral health and substance abuse issues as this one and the same. Um, As I mentioned before, historically, there's two different funding sources, two different legislative branches that oversee each one of those. Well, now with access centers being picked up at the Iowa state level, for example, they're starting to look at it like we need to treat both of these under one roof. Um, So my hope is that in the future, um, they'll look at regulating these as one and the same, um, and that funding will be all put together as well. Um, I know just recently I was exploring some other access center-like facilities across the country. There's one in Nashville that just opened up that's, I believe, 100% state-funded, and that, once again is a great thing to have at a state and even a national level, folks looking at doing something a little bit differently um, to try to break that cycle for how we've historically been treating people that theoretically doesn't always work for them. 
Matt, when you mentioned the operating in silos with mental health and substance use, it also made me think of the operating in silos as it relates to sometimes behavioral health and law enforcement. And I think that this entire discussion speaks to the fact that we all have to communicate openly, again, as I mentioned earlier. And I think that's one more way that crisis intervention is serving our community, is it's allowing us to all share in these conversations. Yeah, it's a, it's a great thing. I mean, I mm-hmm. everybody, I think, knows or has dealt with that, either personally or a family member. I think statistically, there's just a lot of behavioral health things going on that historically no one ever talked about or felt ashamed of talking about, but it's good that people are actually feeling more comfortable going over that, whether it's with law enforcement or reaching out to a family member saying, I need help. Hopefully that uh, will continue in the future. I think what's so exciting about it, too, is that we may not know today what to expect in the years to come, but what we definitely are seeing is that there's a certain energy that comes about uh, being able to sit around a table together and unlikely partnerships that have come from that. We see ourselves as working together towards a common goal and working together across our different sectors, silos, if you will, to come up with solutions that we thought were impossible in years past. I mean, it's really, it helps give a framework through which we can see that things are doable, possible, that felt overwhelming. As we're going through working in these different ways and partnerships together, we're also identifying gaps that have existed and we can see where we can leverage one another's strengths and experiences to work together to achieve new things. So just as an example, uh, our Housing First initiative, it wouldn't have been possible if the work of crisis intervention hadn't already begun, if that education hadn't already started, the partnerships that came through that experience, all of that made that project possible. So that's where I see a lot of opportunity and hope. I don't necessarily have a formulated, what does this look like? But I just know that there's new energy and drive to to work together in new ways. The other benefit I see to this is someone who's worked in uniform and responded to these types of, of calls with people in crisis is when you're an officer in uniform and it's 1130 on a Sunday night and you're talking with someone and you can begin to just begin to understand uh, the crisis they're experiencing, it's difficult for us to always know and remember the different services that are available in the community, what the names of those organizations are, what the criteria are to be eligible for those services, how to connect people to those. And so a real important part of this, I think, is helping law enforcement just to know what's available, but giving them an opportunity and a way to connect people with someone who does know that information that can connect those people with those services, because it just feels impossible as a law enforcement officer to stay up to date on what's available and how to connect people to those, especially after hours. Well, certainly all of that would equate to um, more use of de-escalation and taking our time and identifying the source of the problem instead of just treating a symptom of it as police officers that we're using less handcuffs, less jail time, and and really getting these folks the help they need on the front side versus on the back side. I think too many people think of policing and law enforcement as meaning the same thing. And to me, law enforcement is just one category of policing. Another category is community caretaking. And this is all part of community caretaking. Not everything that police respond to has to be a criminal matter. It can just be of a community caretaking matter. And these situations fall into that. And it's better equipping the officers with the resources they need to have a positive resolution or as positive of a resolution as possible for those community caretaking calls. Well, everybody sitting here today is uh, passionate about their careers. So can I have each of you describe a proud moment or achievement that you've experienced? We'll start with you, Ellie. 
this is kind of a like big overview, but for me, it's always really exciting to see, um, you know, at the, the Monday of our 40 hour CIT training, when we know that there's individuals that maybe wouldn't have chosen to be there on a regular day, but then by like the end of the day, Monday, you can tell they're kind of starting to really get it. And by the time they leave on Friday, it's almost a complete change in attitude and they really understand why they were there. Uh, We implement a lot of lived experience speakers and I just think that it's always really, really incredible to watch the, the shift because, you know, when law enforcement goes to the academy at ILEA, you speak about mental health and you speak about responding to someone who's feeling unwell, but not to the extent that we do at our 40 hour training. And, you know, I, I believe you're taught a lot about keeping yourself safe and keeping the individuals safe. But for me as a whole, I think the most exciting and exhilarating part of my job is just seeing the, the kind of the culture shift that takes place within crisis intervention with law enforcement, but also with the individuals that are being served. So seeing someone who five, 10 years ago, regular basis would have been handcuffed, put in the back of a squad car and then taken to jail. Now, when those things aren't happening, we're automatically eliminating those barriers. We know that criminal histories oftentimes can deter people from receiving some services. And it's just really incredible to see people be able to receive the appropriate services at an earlier time without having to jump through some of those hoops as well. Matt, what about you? This sounds kind of cheesy, perhaps, but it is actually in relation to the Access Center when I very first started on the project. Um, I remember literally like my second day on the job, there was a pre-existing steering committee for this project that had actually been meeting for several years prior to me joining the group. Um, But I remember going to that steering committee meeting and just first sitting at the table and just looking around and realizing how many community leaders were in that room, whether it's city council members, law enforcement representation, folks from nonprofit agencies, folks from the healthcare industry. I just kind of had this profound sense of, wow, this is really cool to be working with this many different people in the community, all coming together toward what I think is a really cool goal of of building an access center. And once again, it sounds kind of silly maybe to have that be like a crowning a moment of your career, but I just really got a sense of this is really cool that it's a major community-driven thing. Historically, I've always worked on things, you know, just for the company I'm working for, um, working on projects that you really are always meeting with the same people day in, day out. So it was really kind of a departure from what I was used to, um, and it just felt really invigorating to be working with such a diverse group of people within the community. Chrissy? Well, I'd say Monday afternoon, I watched someone walk into Cross Park Place and move into his apartment, who has been living on our streets for several decades now. Folks around this table would know him well. That is an extraordinarily humbling and proud moment, and a moment that was only made possible over the past four years. The work of people from, again, everyone from Iowa City Police Department, the Housing Authority, different nonprofits in our community, UIHC, all coming together for months to identify resources, look at challenges as opportunities, come up with local solutions and make something happen. This man now is home. It's an amazing thing to be a part of. We just had uh, one of our officers put out the email saying they're moving in now. So now when you deal with one of these folks, you can take them home instead of all the alternatives. Uh, What a great term to be able to use for, for our community. Yeah. Dave? I'd have to go back to uh, the time I spent uh, in the downtown patrol position. 
I remember when I first started that, which was foot and bike patrol year-round in the downtown, when I would arrive on the Ped Mall in the mornings, uh, there'd be a large number of people congregating on the pedestrian mall because it was a it was a very social place for them. But when they would see me come down, and some of them were chronically homeless, many of them not, most of them would just scatter because their experience was when the police showed up, it's because there had been a problem. People got arrested, people got tickets, so everybody would just leave. And that happened day after day, and slowly I was able to start talking to people. They didn't really want to talk to me at first because they didn't know what my intentions were. But over that first year, it was just starting to build those relationships and let them know that I was just there kind of to maintain the safety, uh, not to arrest people and not to write tickets. In fact, I didn't want to do that. So by year three and four, uh, it got to the point where when I would arrive, people would be shouting my name and coming up, and they'd want to share stories with me of, you know, it may be something as simple as they were able to make a phone call to someone, or they found something that they wanted to show me that uh, they were really happy about, or it could have been they had some bad news that they just wanted to vent to somebody. And it was that that moment when they would start to um, communicate with me as just another person and not as someone in a uniform uh, that was really humbling for me. And I think that was probably the pinnacle of my career. I don't know that I'll ever get back to feeling that kind of job satisfaction. I work towards it every day, but just seeing that wall slowly come down and build those relationships was uh, pretty valuable to me. You may not remember, but you defined that one day to me as eating dinner downtown. One of the individuals asked if they could have one of your French fries. I don't believe he asked. I think he came up and stood at, uh, <laughs> stood next to my table and just started eating off of my plate. <laughs> That's, That's true rapport. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And he was smiling and talking to me and telling me a story at the time. And so, yeah, it's just that was such a change in the relationship between the police and those individuals that, uh, that it took a long time, but I think it's paid off exponentially. Thank you all for sharing your thoughts, and I appreciate the work you do in our community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chief. This is a topic that is always evolving, and I hope this conversation serves as a starting point for more members of the community to join in. We hope all of you have enjoyed listening to this episode of Iowa City Matters. If you did, please subscribe to our podcast to be automatically informed when new episodes are released. You can also find each episode on Iowa City's website at icgov.org slash iowacitymatters. We'll be back soon with another episode. 